Kiara, and welcome to 15 Minute Futures, the podcast with a Kiwi twist, where we explore the future, but in bite size. Today we'll be looking at the future of energy, and we'll ask the question, what will be powering our world in 2040? And to help us explore this question, today we're delighted to have on the show Mr. John Hancock. John has over 25 years of experience working in the energy and technology fields. He has worked on gas and electricity matters across 11 different countries and for a wide range of different firms, including such amazing firms as Ernst & Young, Capgemini, as well as Hewlett-Packard in the Asia-Pacific region. In other words, somebody with a heap of experience in this topic. Many thanks for joining us today, John, and welcome to the show. Cheers, oh, guys. Nice to be here. More than 10% of the world's GDP is now spent on energy. Why is this so darn expensive? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it feels like a good question. Energy isn't expensive. If you think about it, you can lie in the sun and warm yourself up. No, that doesn't cost anything. But it's the controlling it that makes it very, very expensive. And, and I think the reason that people get frustrated with how much the energy that they buy costs um, is because we've really relied on exactly the same technologies to meet our controllable energy needs for the best part of 100 years. Um, and there's really two, two sources there. So one of them is burning hydrocarbon. And then the other set of technologies is around tapping concentrated sources of renewable energy. Um, but both of them are very, very similar. They rely very heavily on economies of scale and centralized sources of production, and those technologies are pretty much what they were when Victorians came up with them, um, and they're just a little bit more efficient. A little bit old hat. Yeah. When we look at the scary pace of change, um, with climate change at the moment, um, it seems like there's a race against time of switching from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And I, someone told me that around 80% of the world's energy is still generated by fossil fuels. Why is that number still really high? Well, I suppose building on this thought that because the technologies have changed very much you know we're still basically using exactly the same technologies that victorians used uh, to power the dark satanic mills <laughs> and um, one of the reasons victorians were so keen on digging stuff up and burning it is that um, they didn't really have to pay for any of the environmental consequences of um, blackening the universe um, and slowly we're getting to a sort of societal consensus that you do need to charge people for the Im impacts that they, they cause on others. But it's very difficult with the environmental impacts of um, energy uh, combustion in particular, and, uh, and even harder when you're dealing with sort of atmospheric consequences like destroying the ozone layer or creating a big wrapper around the world. I like the way you put that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds cosy. <laughs> and it's getting cosy. So there's obviously a problem that we haven't kind of moved ahead with our technologies so far. Um, and what you're identifying is that part of that is because we haven't put the costs where they should lie. But even worse than that, I was reading a report the other day which suggested that the whole fossil fuel industry was actually being subsidized by about $5.3 trillion back in 2015, which is more than the total health spending of the entire world combined. I don't know how reliable that report is, but it was a really interesting concept to me. Why would we be subsidizing fossil fuels so much? And do you see this as such a big barrier to actually getting to a clean energy future? Mm. I mean, people write reports like this quite regularly, and uh, they're always really controversial because what's a subsidy to me might not seem like a subsidy to you. And often people are talking about governments providing maps of where 
potential oil reservoirs are and publishing those maps and things like that's a subsidy because it's making it easy for an oil producer to come in and drill for oil where they would have had to pay to, to produce the map themselves. But it's not quite the same as giving somebody 20 bucks when they buy some oil. So, you know, I, I, I think defining subsidies is, is quite hard. But the second question you asked, which is about, you know, is this going to be a massive barrier to the decarbonisation of, of the energy system, which I think is the, the main challenge the sector faces today. Again, it sort of comes back to costs. And as I was saying, the technologies that we use to meet our energy needs haven't really changed very much for the last 100 years. With one exception, and a really striking exception, is solar. And the point of difference between the costs of solar and the costs of almost every other source of energy generation or production is the rate of increase of um, efficiency with this technology. So I think solar is a really good example of a solid-state technology that's much more like a computer chip. And of course, from Silicon Valley experience, we know that the cost of um, a silicon chip um, tends to halve in whatever period of time, say a year. And the most famous example of solar panels being used in a sort of global audience was, of course, in 1969, because solar panels sat on the lunar rope. And these things cost hundreds of thousands of dollars per unit. Um, of electricity generated, which of course is absolutely ridiculous for mass consumption. And what's happened with solar technology over the last 50 years since the, uh, the original moon landings happened um, is that the what, what they call the price performance has pretty much halved every year to a few hundred thousand dollars a unit and so on and so on and so on to the point now where in many cases, solar-generated um, electricity is actually cheaper than electricity that comes from one of these very large, centralised sources of generation. And if the trend continues, the solar generation will be massively cheaper than any other form of energy production available. And that's the main uh, positive of the energy system. So the future of energy is full of different terms and, and a bit of jargon. And one that we've come across is the so-called Internet of Energy and the potential for us to get both greener and cheaper energy. Can you sort of help us understand exactly what is that and what does it mean for the average person? Mm. Yeah, that's, it, it, it's a good question, Rob. I think it's, and it's a bit confusing. I think there are two concepts people are sort of squishing together when they talk about the Internet of Energy. And one of them is quite unhelpful, which is the idea that things need to be networked in order to be efficient. Because one of the things about electricity is electricity is already networked. That's the whole point. You know, you generate electricity somewhere with economies of scale, and then you articulate it wherever people want to use it. Mm. And networks are incredibly useful. And what we found about the internet is that if you lace together sources of production and consumption of information, then you get these massive um, economic benefits. And um, for sure, you know, networked energy options uh, that work in different ways from the sort of single directional from the middle to the edge. Uh, for energy have certain benefits. But I think really what people are talking about when they talk about the internet of energy is um, the end of scale economics in the sector. So that's where it doesn't cost any more to generate your electricity locally in very small quantities than it does to generate it in a very large centralised power station. And so what goes with this is a decentralisation mm. 
but also a democratization of, of energy. So in uh, in the old days, um, it was generally governments would build these very large power stations. Uh, they'd ride roughshod over people's property rights and would do that for the greater benefit of society. Whereas now, anybody can lock solar panels on their roof, anybody can invest in batteries, and if they're really convinced about the economics of it, they could even snip the wires and they don't have to be part of the network economy at all, which isn't really an internet at all, it's a standalone world. But even people who choose not to do that, they might choose to trade energy with their neighbours. Well, that's, um, that's fascinating. And, and certainly suggests a very different future to the past we've had around the way we produce uh, energy and distribute it. So when you think about uh, the world going forward, because obviously we've got to think about the big picture with energy now, obviously the US is by far the biggest consumer of global energy at 25% currently. But we're seeing these giant middle classes popping up in China and India, and presumably their energy demands are going to increase as well. Do you see them using this kind of um, solar panels and those kinds of formats more than fossil fuels into the future? Or do you see them uh, contributing just as much to the problem of fossil fuels as, say, um, the USA and, well, us and Australia and places are at the moment? Mm, yeah, I mean, I, 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 and, and there's a million and one different factors that go into uh, influencing decisions people make about where to get their energy from. But, um, there certainly is quite a lot of evidence that some developing economies are leapfrogging the centralized mainframe power generation uh, paradigm because they don't need those scale economies. And that's not unlike the way in which a lot of um, countries have leapfrogged fixed line telephony. You know, back in the day, the only way that you could make a phone call is if you actually had a fixed line, so you had to do that. Mm. But if you're a country that never laid those lines in the first place, you can just start with mobile. And it's very, very easy to, to progress from there. And, then, and there are some examples of parts of um, developing Africa and Asia who um, uh, have uh, established their electricity um, network, sometimes as isolated microgrids based on solar and wind technologies without necessarily needing to be plugged into any huge power stations anywhere else. So look, leaping ahead to 2050, what do you think is going to be powering the world? Is it going to be renewables, fossils? Fission, fusion, or something else? Well, it goes back to um, the uh, point about this uh, exponential trend. You know, if you play by my uh, story about solar out, then you know the price of solar is going to halve every single year in perpetuity. So, uh, based on that trajectory, we'd sort of guess that by about 2035, all the energy in the world will be solar. Of course, the joke is that the same sort of price performance is happening with wind. So, as well as all the energy in the world being solar, it also be wind. Um, <laughs> And it probably just means that we'll still be diversity in energy sources and there'll probably still be a role for fossil fuels, but it'll be a lot less significant than it, than it is today. And as you say, Steve, the energy mix and the way in which people buy and sell it will be completely different. There'll be far more participation at the edge of the network rather than in the middle. So many thanks for coming on the show today, John. I'm sure our listeners are feeling really energized to create a sustainable energy future as a result of what you've told us. Uh, and that ticking sound means uh, our 15 minutes are nearly up. Many thanks to our sponsors, to Springload, creators of people-driven digital experiences, and Anticipate, the people who help you look ahead, plan ahead, and get ahead. Thanks for listening.